1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is James Glick, whose latest book is Time Travel. Earlier books include The Information, Chaos, Making a New Science, Genius, The Life and Science of Richard Feynman, Faster, What Just Happened, and a biography of Isaac Newton. James Glick was the founder of Pipeline, which was a very early attempt to link up all elements of the internet, and that was back in 1993. James Glick, let's start by talking about time travel. You'd finished the information. I know in looking at the information that there are elements that kind of border on the ideas in time travel. What brought you to write this particular book? It didn't flow
0: out of my last book in any obvious way that I'm aware of or at least that I was conscious of and it it seemed at first like a kind of odd subject for me. I read some science fiction. I liked science fiction when I was a kid. The science fiction stories that I particularly liked often involved time travel just because they were so odd. They were kind of weird in a way that the ordinary space adventure wasn't weird. They made you think. But none of that would have justified a book. What really kind of pushed me over the edge, what made me think there's a story to tell here, was when I realized that the idea of time travel itself, which we're all so familiar with, is a relatively new idea, that it didn't exist in ancient times it didn't exist 200 years ago and that just astonished me That's, even now when as i'm saying it out loud to you it just seems kind of weird that 200 years ago the words time travel that didn't mean anything nobody had ever put those words together literally and the idea that there could be a machine or a gate a doorway a portal that you could move through and you would suddenly be not in your present, but a different year far in the future or far in the past where maybe you could meet the inhabitants of that time. This just never occurred to anybody. And then immediately you have to wonder, well, why didn't it? I mean, it's so obvious. It's such a part of our lives. How do you subtract that from your mental toolkit? Then you have to ask, so why did it happen? Why suddenly in 1895 when H.G. Wells wrote The Time Machine and explained it all to us, You know, why then? What had changed in the
1: world that made that possible and necessary? And that started the investigation. What I noticed throughout the book, Time Travel, is that you travel back way further in time to antecedents that aren't quite the same thing, but speculations about what the future might be. Only nobody sent someone there. This was the first time somebody sent someone there.
0: Right. It's not just the sending someone there. It's also the idea of the future as being really different, a world that you might not recognize where people's ways of life had been changed, particularly by technology. And that happened because by the end of the 19th century, people could see technology changing their lives right in front of them in real time. You know, they could see that their children were not going to live in the same world that they themselves had been born into. And that was new. That required an acceleration in the pace of technological change that has continued to this day. I mean, technology goes faster and faster. yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was part of the subject of that book. But change in people's lives had to become visible, and then people became curious about the future. And H.G. Wells himself, he was very young when he wrote The Time Machine. It was his first book. He was a person who had a real curiosity about the future. He was interested in what the world was going to turn into. And so he you know, created this fantastic device as a way into a type of storytelling
1: Well, you've also got things like looking backward and, you know, other kind of fantasies about the future. So it wasn't completely unknown that people might project ahead. But I guess it's sort of like, was 1100 that different from 1400 if you're living inside the century? You know, there are different ways of projecting ahead. People have always been interested
0: in prophecy, fortune telling, you know, go ask the oracle what's going to happen in the future. It's not that The word future didn't exist. But mostly when people asked about the future, they were asking about their own lives. Am I going to find fame and fortune? Meet a tall, dark stranger kind of question. The idea that the world was going to be unrecognizable, that really was a new idea. I mean, we talk about utopias. Utopia is a kind of imagining of the future. And the word goes back to Thomas More. But his utopia, I was surprised to realize, wasn't set in the future. His utopia was just in a faraway island someplace. He
1: wasn't thinking about the future. Plato was certainly thinking about the past and creating Atlantis in his dialogues. I mean, that's the past, not the future.
0: Yes, but even the past, uh, interest in the past was also developing. I mean, our, our sense of history is something that's had to evolve over a period
1: of time too. What this all does is it opens up the door to a lot more than time travel. At what point did you realize that this was threads that just moved way out and far afield?
0: That's really kind of the fun of telling the story of time travel, because H.G. Wells you know, did things a certain way. His, his guy gets into a machine, and he goes into the future, and then he comes back. And Wells wasn't interested in the complexities of time travel itself. He was just inventing the idea as a way to get the reader into his story. And it took a while for there to be such a thing as time travel fiction, as a genre. And you can go back through the literature and watch it develop, watch it emerge. And one of the real turning points was the creation of pulp magazines in New York in the 1920s and 30s and especially the magazines created by this funny character Hugo Gernsback like amazing stories or wonder stories and they, they the names kept changing because the magazines would go bankrupt and then he would he would run away from his creditors and in his magazines he printed the well's time machine over again without bothering to you know check the copyright but he also commissioned stories from new writers for paltry amounts of money and these writers used their imaginations and invented new variations on the theme and they started asking questions that wells had never asked you know all right what if you go back in time and now you meet yourself then what happens what kind of conversation might you have or some kid wrote a letter to the editor of one of Gernsback's magazines and said, hey, you know, what about this? What if you go back in time and you bring a pistol with you and you shoot your grandfather dead? And now you will never be born. And so you won't be able to go back in time and shoot your grandfather dead. And now we have a paradox. We've got an impossible loop. We've got something that can't happen. And that kind of stuff, the fertile minds of the people thinking about these funny stories invented just every variation you can think of. I mean, you know, I think, this literature better than I do, probably. And you know the strange paths down which authors have gone.
1: One of the paths, of course, that you mentioned is the paradox, because Heinlein, I believe he was writing for uh, John Campbell and Astounding Stories, wrote two separate time travel stories which involved paradox. The first one I read was All You Zombies, where the main character is his own father and mother. And then, as you ask James Glick, where did the DNA come from? (laughs) Right. Somewhere lurking in the
0: background of all of these stories is something that, if you examine it too closely, isn't quite going to work because – the paradoxes really are paradoxes. And yes, All You Zombies was a very complicated—it's as if there was an arms race in dealing with the paradoxes. And because of all the things that had come before, Heinlein had to do a transgender version of the story where somebody is both his mother and his own father. We can leave that as an exercise to the listener to work out how you would organize that plot. But even before that, there's another story by Heinlein that you know very well, By His Bootstraps which I write about at some length in time travel because it's the first time a writer decided to take seriously the question, what happens when you meet yourself? And then you meet yourself again. The story opens with Robert Heinlein's hero, whose name is Bob, sitting at his typewriter, working on a dissertation about some philosophical thing about time. And then a hole opens in the air next to him, and and another man pops out, and this other man bears a strange family resemblance to Bob, except he's got a three day growth of beard, and he taps Bob on the shoulder and he says, "You know, don't bother with that. it's all a lot of nonsense And Bob says, Who are you?" And you know, hilarity ensues, but we know it's obvious to us that this is Bob himself, and he has come back from sometime in the future, but it's a new enough idea in the literature that Bob number one doesn't know it yet, and he's got to learn it. And Bob number two has got a few lessons to teach him. And by the time we're done with this story, we're thinking about problems of free will, we're thinking about issues to do with the continuity of the self. Heinlein was in many ways a down-to-earth writer, as you know, but he also thought some
1: pretty serious philosophical thoughts as you discuss in time travel, we also have theories about multiple universes, and multiple universes don't sound like time travel, but if you make a change in time, do you create another universe? Can you change events in the past to affect the the present? And that brings you into the area of physics. At what point did you kind of go, Let's see what physicists say about this.
0: Well, physics comes into the story really practically at the beginning because when H.G. Wells sits down to persuade his readers that they should suspend belief and imagine that such a thing as a time machine is possible, he's got to do some heavy lifting because, remember, they've never heard of time travel and they're not going to believe it. And so he starts the book in a, in what strikes us, I think, as a very old-fashioned way of writing, and his guy, his time traveler, who doesn't even have a name, we just call him the time traveler, makes a little speech to his friends to say, now, be patient. I've got something to explain to you, and then I'm going to tell you a great story. But what I have to explain is that everything you think you know about time is wrong. And everything you think you know about geometry is incomplete. And you think there are just three dimensions. But when you think about it, isn't duration, isn't time itself a fourth dimension? And, you know, some of them try to argue and some of them nod cooperatively. And eventually he explains it all. But this is 1895. And it's 10 years later that... Einstein also starts to talk about time as a fourth dimension. Einstein and Minkowski, who create the idea that space and time are inextricably linked, that the universe is not just space or time. It is a space-time continuum. And now we talk about space-time single word. You know, we don't even bother hyphenating it because we believe our physicists. Really, the point of my writing about time travel is – to watch a kind of explosion in the entire culture in how we think about time. And it all started happening around the turn of the last century. But it didn't just affect the new genre of fiction that was about to be born that we that we know as science fiction. It affected literary artists and physicists as well and philosophers. And partly they were influenced by the science fiction they were reading. And partly also, of course, the science fiction writers were influenced by reading about Einstein in the newspapers.
1: Do you have any notion that Einstein might have read well? You know,
0: I kind of hoped that I'd be able to find something like that. And no, I really don't. I don't think so. I mean, first of all, he would have had to read it in German, and it was quite a while before the time machine was translated into German, although it was translated into French almost almost immediately. But that's not necessary. What really happened is that Einstein and Wells were breathing the same air, the same intellectual air. They were living in a world in which it was suddenly very natural to think about time as just a form of space. Wells himself, when he's doing this kind of fake explanation, has his time traveler explain, look at a weather diagram where you've got a needle making a graph of air pressure over time. In this diagram, time is just another direction. And of course, that kind of mathematicization of time where you make graphs and you can visualize time spatially goes back a long way. It goes back to Descartes, even before Newton.
1: When you say it's in the air, is that sort of like the way that Leibniz and Newton calculus was discovered at the same time?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. Calculus, uh, now, now we get a little speculative about the history of science, and I'm willing to go down that road. I, I do think, you know, would calculus have been invented slash discovered if it weren't for Newton? Well, yeah, it would have, because Leibniz invented slash discovered it at the same time. But the, and they did it in very different ways. Their ideas of the calculus almost seemed incompatible. They used different notation. And and then, as cranky old men, they got into a big fight about which of them had actually, which of them deserved to be called the inventor of the calculus. Yeah, in a certain way, you could say that mathematics had reached a point where it became almost inevitable that these new tools would be created by somebody. It's a little bit different in the story of time travel, I think, But there are some similarities. You could say that humans thinking about time had reached a point where suddenly it was possible to think about time in a more complicated way. And H.G. Wells did it in creating his fantastic story, and physicists did it in a very different way for very different reasons. But it's not a coincidence that they ended up speaking the same language and using the same imagery.
1: One question, of course, that comes up in looking at the title of the book, is a simple one. Is time travel possible?
0: No. Why? You know, a funny thing is, let me digress. If you ask physicists whether time travel is possible, they are much more, just speaking generally, reluctant than I was just now to say no. They'd say, How? we can't rule that out. There are possibilities. A lot of physicists like to talk about wormholes. Kurt Gödel for Einstein's 70th birthday, presented him with a little mathematical surprise, which was a discovery that Einstein's own equations allowed for a possible universe in which closed time-like curves, as Gödel called them, could exist, allowing for the possibility of time travel to the past. These are, you know, there are ways in which physicists would love to get time travel into the picture or at least leave it as a possibility. But the reason I say no is that I have a kind of, you might call it a naive or common sense view of time, of the future and the past. And I would express it this way. It's that the present is real. Here we are, you and I, we're talking. Well, what I just said was the present has now gone into the past and we have a new present. The past is not real anymore. It was, but now it's gone. And We only have indirect access to it through our memories and through whatever relics survive. The future is also not real because it hasn't happened yet, and it's open, and it doesn't yet exist. And that in itself, that common sense view of time, if it's true— is in conflict with the basic notion of time travel because when H.G. Wells' time traveler gets into his machine and zooms into the future, he arrives, and there is the future waiting for him, and it already has a kind of existence. And I don't think that's how the universe is. And in the same way, if you imagine that your time machine is going to take you into the past, and then you're going to get out, and there is going to be Shakespeare, you know, uh, writing one of his plays with a, with a quill pen, and you could look over his shoulder while he does it, or worse, you could converse with him, then you have to ask right away, well, well, well wait, that didn't happen. I wasn't there, really, so how can I be there now? I'm just expressing, again, the, some of the paradoxes that, that people use in their fiction.
1: You express one from Woody Allen, which is a character trying to tell Bunuel what Film he might make. I love that story. I, I mean, I love that joke. W- Woody
0: Allen's character describes to Boonwell this, the the movie that he knows Boonwell is going to make in the future, and Boonwell says, "Well, what? I don't. know. That's ridiculous. Why don't they just? Why don't they just leave the room?"
1: This goes back, of course, to the question about whose DNA is it, because. Okay, if Buñuel got the idea of exterminating angel or discreet charm of the bourgeoisie from Owen Wilson traveling from the present, and Owen Wilson got it from seeing these movies in his past, then where did the idea come from? Right. So. The real answer to your question
0: is that nobody can say as definitively as I just did that time travel is impossible. And I can tell you sociologically that if you ask physicists, they're more likely to allow for the possibility of time travel than if you ask the science fiction writers. To me, the science fiction writers who make up the stories have a more grounded, a more realistic, a more sensible view of what time really is sometimes than the physicists who enjoy the ideas that they have been reading in science fiction stories since they were kids.
1: So that means that in a sense, when you look at something like Octavia Butler's Kindred, where a black woman of the present happens to go into the antebellum South, or Outlander, where somebody touches a rock, magic happens, and she goes back into the 1700 Scotland, these two authors are basically doing exactly what Wells did, which is magic. Yeah. Oh, I loved what William Gibson,
0: another great science fiction writer, said. He, he realized that time travel was a magic as impossible as touching your, your nose with your elbow. You know, you think you ought to be able to do that. There's no reason that shouldn't be possible. But
1: then when you, when you really look at it closely, it's not possible. Well the other thing about Gibson is that he tried to predict the future, and as he said, in neuromancer he got so much right, but he missed cell phones.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but he denies that he was trying to predict the future. He always says he's using visions of the future as every science fiction writer does, to really really to say something about the present. Neuromancer is about the world that he that he was living in, and it does seem to us awfully visionary.
1: That brings up a question. You know, all art is about the present, even if you think you're writing about the future. So to that degree, Wells was in essence, on some level, always writing about the 1890s. I mean, obviously. You can't help revealing yourself.
0: You can't help revealing your time and, 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 and your own prejudices. I mean, I write quite a bit about one of Isaac Asimov's books of time travel, The End of Eternity, and, and his you know, 20-something century people sound suspiciously like 1950s people when Asimov was writing, and their attitudes about women are the attitudes of a 1950s American
1: male. James Glick, I want to ask you about some of these areas that you discuss in time travel. I mentioned before multiple universes. I'm putting aside... The fact that, let's say, you can go back in time, you know, make a tiny little change and a second universe or a third or an infinite number of universes exist, is that completely theoretical? Is there any way that that could actually exist?
0: Well, you know, the question, to be fair, is above my pay grade. But then again, I would also say it's pretty much above everybody's pay grade now, It's an idea that's taken very seriously by certain physicists today. There is what's known as the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which suggests exactly what you're saying, that every quantum event creates a kind of fork in reality. And in one universe, Schrodinger's cat is dead, and in the other one, he's alive. And in one universe, the Geiger counter clicked, And in another universe, it didn't. And that creates, as you can see, an awful lot of universes very quickly if everything that happens is forking off a new universe. And I think it would be, you know, again, speaking as a naive common sense sort of person, that's a ridiculous idea. And the idea that scientists need to posit the existence of an essentially infinite number of universes just to make their equations work out properly seems kind of embarrassing to me. But the people who take this idea seriously are are generally a lot smarter than I do, and they, and they do have their reasons. But I, I can't leave the topic without noting, again, kind of sociologically and as a matter of history, that the first iteration of this many worlds idea goes back to Jorge Luis Borges, whose short story, The Garden of Forking Paths, first published in English in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, I think in the 1940s, expressed
1: exactly this idea as a literary device. Are there other ideas you think that popped up in fiction and scientists came up with them or do you think it mostly just came in as you know from the other door looking at the equation I'm
0: not accusing physicists of you know stealing from the science fiction writers but but I, what I'm saying is that there's a tremendous amount of cross-fertilization we're making a mistake if we compartmentalize the intellectual world in which we live so that physicists are in one place and philosophers are in a different place and fiction writers are in yet another place we're all We're basically the same people. We grow up reading the same books and watching the same movies, and and we do talk to one another.
1: In your research, James Glick, did any of your ideas change at all by doing the research for time travel? I always
0: start out a book thinking certain things and then decide that I was wrong about those things.
1: Did you think time travel could exist before you started the book?
0: No, I haven't changed my mind about that. I knew all along that I was going to have to say out loud in the course of the book that time travel is impossible and that a certain number of people who bought the book were then going to throw it down in disgust or bring it back to the bookstore and demand a refund. And, you know, that's going to happen. And if you're one of those people, you're entitled to
1: it. And and you don't have to believe me. You said that you learned things and things changed. Can you be specific? Do you yeah. remember? All right. I will tell you one one way
0: in which I think my thinking has evolved. You know, a thing that you often hear is you should live in the now, that a a healthy way of life involves really enjoying the present and not worrying too much about what the future holds, not obsessing with what happened in the past. Live in the now. I decided by the time I was done with the book that I don't believe that. I don't believe in living in the now. I, I think that that actually the very thing that makes us human is our appreciation of the past and the future. And the more sophisticated we have become in understanding the possibilities of time, the more creative we've become in examining the nature of our memories and the nature of our anticipation of the future, the more human we've become, the richer our emotional lives have been. and. That's a good thing, to mix our knowledge of the past and our hopes for the future with our experience of the present. Living in the now just diminishes us.
1: James Glick, right now we have TV show Timeless, another one, Frequency, The Flash, There Was Lost, Doctor Who, Outlander. We could go on. There's a lot that I don't know because there are so many TV stations and there are so many movies out about time travel. Some of them deal with paradoxes. Some of them deal with going into the past. What is it, do you think, about our society today that is doing this? Is it just because of people reading other stories and coming up with new ones, or is there something going on? I always think that the magic of these stories is
0: not the trick, not actually the gimmick that they end up using, but what they're really trying to tell us, and— each time travel story, whether it's science fiction that's literally time travel or whether it's time travel in a more subtle way, all of these stories are, are trying to explore puzzles that we have about our feelings, about our memories, about our relationships to our parents or our children. They give us a way of investigating certain things that, that we couldn't investigate more directly, more simply, with a simple linear view of
1: time. Well, that brings up the other question, which is that we've also got movies like Memento and several other films, and to some degree time travel, your book does it as well, which is the ability to shift direction instantly, and I don't think people necessarily thought like that in the past.
0: No, I don't think they did at all. That's really, that's really the point. I don't think they didn't have the language. They didn't have the mental toolkit. That's, that's what time travel has given us. It's given us a, a way of talking about past and future and how they mingle together. You know, he's not a time travel writer in any traditional sense, but Marcel Proust, practically a contemporary of H.G. Wells, well, what was his great subject? It was time. The the title of his masterwork is In Search of Lost Time. And he tells a story in a way that has more narrative complexity than any story that had ever been told before. He is mixing memory and anticipation and thinking about his past self and his future selves as versions of the same person, and is engaging in, in what you really have to call a kind of time travel. Because it was the only way for him to understand the things that he needed to understand.
1: One thing I've noticed, and you kind of mention it toward the end of your book, is that we've moved away from utopias in the general sense to most stories about the future now are dystopias And we see very little. There was a a movie called Tomorrowland, which sort of seemed to show a positive future, but in the end, it was completely incoherent. But everything, Mad Max, it's all negative. What's going on there? Well, uh, I don't think
0: we're generally quite as optimistic about the future of the human race as people were 100 years ago. And I think the reasons for that are all right in front of us. One of them is people are worried about what we're doing to the planet. It's hard to think about the future without worrying about whether there's going to be you know, much left, much of civilization left as we know it. Uh, another reason is that some of the many marvels that we were promised 100 years ago, now that they've come true, aren't entirely delivering on their promise. We have new technologies every day, it seems, that solve one problem and create another problem and we and we worry about that we worry we worry about it rightly
1: back in 1993 when you founded the pipeline the very very beginning of the internet was there any did you have any sense at all that i don't know 20 years later we would wind up with something similar to what we have did you even think about it back then well i did actually i i mean I was pretty
0: excited about what was coming and I and when I say that I don't mean to suggest that I was some kind of visionary what I what I recall is that everybody was very excited about what was happening and and had a sense that the future was going to be quite different it certainly has unfolded faster and more universally than I expected I mean I could see the idea of of smartphones emerging even in the early 90s. People were talking about it. I visited some of the telephone laboratories, and people said, you know, these little devices will be able to tell you exactly where you are, and uh, we'll have, uh, you know, the, the many marvelous capabilities that we all take for granted. But something that's different about the present is thats w- that we're all pretty self-conscious about these developments in tech in technology. We can see the changes happening as they happen, and uh, they don't quite take us by surprise the way they used to.
1: I recall once talking to somebody who went to, I went to Stuyvesant High School in New York, and I talked to someone a few years ago, who was 20 years old and had just gotten out of Stuyvesant. We were comparing notes. He said to me, what was it like in a time when you weren't always connected, when you didn't, couldn't contact somebody and you could go off on your own? And at that point, I realized we were living in different planets. Does that make sense to you? Well, of, co- of course it does. Uh,
0: the ex- experience of our children and grandchildren is going to be different from ours in ways that are almost unimaginable. And after all, that is, that is the motivation f- for time travel, this sense, which is uh, it happens faster and faster now than ever before, but it really was happening 100 and 120
1: years ago too. Alvin Toffler wrote future shock. Do you think, looking at Donald Trump, that this is the outcome of future shock? Just in the sense that people are so flipped out about what the world has become compared to, in your terms, the nostalgia of what they think it was, that they're trying to grasp onto some kind of something to bring them back or something? Well, I suppose part of
0: the appeal of Trump is a kind of nostalgia for a world that never existed. But of course, most people know that the past, the dreamy past that he's imagining wasn't so good for them. He's
1: creating a sort of a sort of fantasy, right? a pipe dream well, the the reason I mentioned that is because at the end of the book, you do talk about the role of memory and nostalgia in how we live our lives. And what you were saying before about what makes us human, it also I think on some level may make us angry that the, the present is not as good as we expected and maybe the past seems better I don't know optimism and
0: pessimism coexist in all of us you know sometimes that's what we feel that the past was really great and the present is disappointing us and other times we look back with a different perspective and and we think well That was kind of crappy, and
1: now things are actually pretty good. Both things are possible. James Glick, you've written The Information, and now you've written Time Travel. Are you thinking about what your next book will be and what direction you plan to take your work?
0: Well, I'm thinking about it, but I haven't got it figured out yet. By now, I ought to have at least a glimmering of an idea.
1: Well, maybe you could get a shortwave radio and talk to your future. self. (laughs) Yeah, if only I had a time machine, I could go into the future and find my next book. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.